I encourage you to take out your Bible and open once again to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 this morning where we will pick up where we left off last Lord's Day and a sermon just simply entitled The Final Judgment. The Final Judgment where we are considering the terror of standing face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. We just sang a song a moment ago about the grace of God, which is our only hope in standing face to face with the risen, the risen, ascended, and enthroned King of kings and Lord of lords. You who hope to his one day see, will you his grace receive? Because apart from that, it is a terrifying thing to stand face to face with the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And there is no hope apart from the grace of God. Revelation chapter 20. Let me begin reading in verse 7, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Again, the passage we began looking at last Lord's Day, the final judgment. Revelation chapter 20, beginning. Let me begin reading in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, and from his presence... Earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. <clears throat> and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Well, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come once again to the book of Revelation not because of our interest in the end times. We come to the book of Revelation because we want to know Christ. In Revelation, you have given to us a picture, a portrait of Christ enthroned on high, sovereign over all things, victorious over all his enemies and our enemies and the great need of the church in the time between Christ's ascension and his return is to know this Christ and to live our lives with both eyes fixed upon the glory of Christ and what he's accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection and now his kingship on the throne. Father, forgive us. Forgive us if still we're trying to fit all these things into an end time view. It's not about that. It's about Christ, knowing Christ. And Father, today as we come to a terrifying picture of Christ on the throne in judgment. Father, we must, we must bring our lives to bear upon the, the revelation of this passage, upon the truths that are revealed in it, about what is guaranteed to transpire in the great white throne judgment. Father, that we ourselves might have confident hope, not in anything we've done, but in Christ Jesus. Our hope is built on nothing but Jesus Christ and His righteousness. In Christ alone we hope. 
And we trust in the grace that is found in him. So Father, would you help us this day? But just as Jesus says, wide is the path to destruction, the gate to destruction, and narrow is the gate to eternal life. Just as Jesus warns that there will be many in the final judgment who want to argue, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this, didn't I do that? And Christ says, depart from me into eternal judgment because I never knew you. These sobering warnings force us to bring our lives to bear under this text and to consider our hearts for Christ. Would you send your spirit to do what only the spirit can do? My words simply cannot get to the place they need to get to for souls to be stirred face to face with Jesus Christ. We pray, we plead that the Spirit will do what needs to be done and that for those who are true believers, this would be a time of celebration, a time of worship of Christ who is our hope. Father, help us to make much of Jesus in this text. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last Lord's Day, we began considering five truths from this text on the great white throne judgment of God. We got through three of the five last week, and we'll look at the remaining two today. But by quick review, last week, the first truth we looked at was kind of just the purpose of this. When we look at this great white throne judgment in verses 11 through 15, what is the purpose of it? And the purpose really is derived right there from verse 11, the very first word in the verse, then. Then. So John is connecting what's coming in verses 11 through 15 with what has just happened in verses 7 through 10. So you've got to, to go back, this happened, and then this. What is going on here in this particular passage? What's he connecting it to? Well, what came before it? It was God purging all of his creation through the eternal destruction of Satan. He's purging. We know in chapter 21, we're going to have the new heaven and the new earth where there will be no more sin, right? No more tears, no more suffering. Well, how do you get from here where you have Satan who is bound and you have flesh, which is sinful, and you have the world. How do you get from here to chapter 21, a new heaven and new earth where there's none of that? Well, it all has to be purged. And so in verses uh, 7 through 10, we have the purging of all creation with getting rid of Satan into his eternal destruction. All of, but that's Satan. All of creation has to be purged. And so now Christ, having purged creation of Satan now turns his attention to the other great enemy in creation. Man. Man who lives in rebellion to him. And why must man be purged from the face of the earth? For the same reason Satan was. That's the then you see in verse 11. Why, why this great white throne judgment where sinners are being sent into a lake of fire? The same reason Satan was. God created everyone and everything for one reason. To worship him. To glorify him. And God is serious about that. Satan is held accountable for glorifying God and he didn't do so. 
God purged him, sent him into the lake of fire. Likewise, you and I, just like Satan, were created to know God, to love God, to worship God, to obey God, to, to hear his voice and to do his bidding out of a heart of joy because my God speaks and because my heart is entrenched with him, my heart loves to obey. That's what we were created to do, to glorify him in that way where he's the center of the universe. He's the center of all things and all of my life joyfully revolves around him. But what has man done? Man doesn't want God at the center. Man wants me at the center. Man wants himself at the center. I want to glorify myself. I want to enjoy me, me. And I'll keep God in the periphery. I'll keep God somewhere there. Maybe I'll do my religious duty on Sunday. But God says, I created you that I would be the center. And if you will not esteem me as worthy of being the centerpiece of all things, well, then when it's all said and done, I will esteem my glory in the way that I punish you for having not esteemed me centrally over all things. Do you see that? You've got to see this for this to make sense. If you won't glorify me in that place of preeminence that I deserve, then I will glorify myself preeminently in the way that I destroy you and in the eternal judgment that your sins deserve. And so when we think about the purpose of the great white throne judgment and God sending sinners to hell, it's for the exact same reason he sent Satan to hell. For his glory. I've tried to be repetitious in our study of the Revelation. I have... I don't care what anyone's end-time view is. This is not about end-time view. This is about the rule and reign of King Jesus and seeing Jesus in the center of the book of Revelation. And if you will not bow the knee to this king, then this king will glorify himself in how he deals with you. This whole book is about us understanding the gravity of the glory and greatness of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And for all who keep Christ at a distance, who do not keep Christ center, Christ will glorify himself in sending those to an eternal damnation. That's the purpose we saw in the first truth. The second truth, as if the thought of hell isn't terrifying enough, there is something more terrifying than hell. And this will be a great test of how you see Christ. There is something more terrifying than an eternity in hell. Answer, standing face to face with Jesus Christ. Standing face to face with Jesus Christ is more terrifying than an eternity in hell. As, as John looks up and sees this great white throne on the heels of the destruction of Satan, who is it who's on the throne? We wrestled with this last week. It is Christ who's on the throne. God is on the throne in the person of Christ. But Christ is not there as a lamb. Throughout the book of Revelation, in the time between his, uh, his, his ascension and his return, we do see the, the lamb at work. The lamb slain is before the foundation of the world. But this Christ on the throne is a lion. And we, we, we get the gravity of this because of what we see in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. We know that's Christ because of a lot of what Jesus said. We looked at last week. 
And what? What's the response to Jesus? From his presence, earth and sky fled away. What's happening there? They're terrified. They are terrified of the glory of Christ, the unrestrained, unbound, unfettered glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. They are terrified, and they flee from his presence. And what? Bad news. No place was found for them to hide. Again, this is cyclical. This is not something we haven't seen before. We've seen final judgment in these round, roundabouts. This is a picture of what we saw earlier in the book. You remember when, when Christ comes and the people are fleeing, begging, and trying to pull the mountains down upon them to bury them alive? Because that would be better than to stand face to face with Jesus. Do you remember us say, talking about that? It would be better to be buried alive by Mount Everest and the pain and the, than to stand face to face. That's a terrifying thing to come into the presence of almighty glory. So what do we have here? Is this another final judgment? No, no, no. It's the same thing. Just now it's being brought to bear in the fullness. It's another picture of it. And my goodness, it is overwhelming. Heaven and earth is doing everything in its power to run away from Jesus of Nazareth. One commentator writes this, and again, I said a moment ago, how your heart receives that it is more terrifying to stand face to face with Jesus than it is to spend eternity in hell. I said, this will be a great test of how you esteem Christ. Try this one on. This throne has an awful occupant. When was the last time you thought of Christ in those terms? An awful occupant. Not in terms of he's a terrible person. Awful in the sense of I am scared to death. Awful. It is an awful thing. I, I, I tremble. I'm quivering. I'm shaking. I can't even stand up. I'm melting like wax. It is an awful thing to stand in the presence of Christ. The throne has an awful occupant. There's no name, no figure, no shape, but only an awful, mysterious and composed presence, which can be nothing less than the one unnameable, indescribable, eternal second person of the Godhead. There is nothing but the naked presence of almightiness, so dreadful that very earth and heaven seem to be fleeing before it, fleeing from it. You see here, the terrifying nature of this throne is not that from here you go to hell, the terrifying nature of this throne is now you're brought, you're summoned to stand face to face before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Almighty Glory, the one whom you have ignored, denied, cursed, blasphemed. And keep in mind, not just those who are clearly resistant to Christ, even those regenerate church members who've marginalized Christ, who've played games with Christ, who gather to sing these glorious songs from a heart that couldn't be more bored and dull and dry toward Jesus, who've put off Christ, and now, now in this terrifying day, every lost sinner will stand face to face, quorum Deo, in the very presence of this lion, the Lord Jesus Christ, and they will see 
Christ standing, as we, uh, John described earlier, with feet as glowing in a furnace, eyes of fire, no mercy, no grace, no grading on a curve. Face to face with this God that we didn't keep central in our life as he made us. That was the second truth. Well, with the purpose being in line, this is all for the glory of God in Christ. And with the, the, the reality of the great white throne in place, what it is, who's on it, and all that's taking place there, the terrifying nature of the throne, that was the second truth. Then we left off last week with the summons of Christ to this judgment. To all who have kept Christ at a distance, each individually will be summoned before the throne. Verse 12, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And we left off last week considering who will be summoned. Well, it's those who've kept Christ at a distance, both great and small, people you've heard of and people you haven't heard of. But we left it off with this. We can group these people together in so many different ways. The out-and-out sinner who just has no interest in Christ whatsoever, they will stand before the terrifying face of King Jesus. Not only them, that self-righteous individual who prided themselves in being so good and so moral, that individual who feels so holy and righteous and moral will stand face to face with blazing holiness, blazing righteousness, blazing everything. And what is that person going to do when standing face to face with that? All of a sudden, they're nothing. The self-righteous will stand. Those religious cult members, those who've turned away from Christ to other gods, other deities, other idols, they'll be there standing face to face with Christ. And they'll realize it was true. There is but one God. And he is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. But now it's too late. The procrastinator will be there. The person who has, saw, has heard the message of the gospel. And yes, I know I need to follow Jesus. And I know I need to do what's being taught. And, and, and repent of all else. And, but man, I'm, just, I'm, I'm in a season of life. I'm enjoying things. Things are good. I don't want to mess things up. If you're summoned... And you've procrastinated. You will stand face to face. And then the unregenerate church member. The unregenerate church member. Oh, they've been faithful in church. They've been such good attenders. They're always present. They're always active. But they've never loved Jesus like this. That he's the center of their life. And they alter and rearrange their life, their thinking, their priorities, their prejudices, their wants. It's got to be my, all of that is rearranged to what, what do you want? King, what, what, what is pleasing to you? What is honoring to you? And they will stand before this one and be sent to an eternal damnation. We have the purpose 
We have kind of the terrifying nature, the reality of the throne, the great white throne with Christ upon it in awful glory. And we've got this summons. We continue this morning, truth number four of five. Two more this morning. Number four. Summoned to stand face to face before the glory of Christ, who is the lion, who is the radiance of the glory of God. Now Christ will bring forth all of the evidence against this soul. Christ will now bring forth all of the evidence against this soul. And Revelation chapter 20 kind of characterizes it. We're going to call it Exhibit A and Exhibit B. And both of these things together leave no doubt, no question, that there is no place in the kingdom of God, in the new, king, in the new heaven and the new earth, for this individual. Exhibit A. I want you to note there in the middle of verse 12, John writes, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. What are these books? These books contain God's perfect and precise and accurate record for every life. We talk about God's omniscient. We talk about God's omnipresence, right? Omniscient means he knows all things. He knows all things about you. He knows things about you you don't know about yourself. He knows things about you other people don't know about you. But he knows everything about you inside and out. And God's omnipresence means there's nowhere you can go and run and hide and get away that he's not seeing and knowing. And the danger here is we're quick to affirm, my God is omnipresent. My God is omniscient. And we leave it at that. What we fail to often understand is that the implication of that is this. God knows everything about you. The God who created you for his glory with every breath, with every heartbeat, to know him, to love him, to worship him, to rejoice in him, in his son Jesus Christ. He's the God who now brings that to bear upon your life and with a microscope as though it's all been done and open, he goes with you everywhere. He knows every motive, he knows every thought, he knows every deed. And it's not just so that he, I know all, it's for that when you stand before him, it will all come to bear. These books contain God's precise and accurate record for every life. God has been keeping an inscrutable book on you. From the moment of your conception. And his omniscience, he's recorded every single thought. Bear with me for just a moment. Because you and I have got to feel the gravity of this. He has recorded every thought, every word, every deed of every unsaved person who's ever lived. And every, he knows it all. He's got it all of us. Every sword sin is recorded. Every useless word that we whispered. That was just kind of, you know, in a moment of frustration, I just, you know, I'm not going to say it in front of anybody, but man, I'm just going to, I just need to vent it, written down. Every selfish deed, every sensual thought, every smutty joke, every carnal commitment, everything the sinner has done and failed to do, everything the sinner should have done but didn't do, every influence 
you have ever exerted on going back to your childhood, your little brother and sister. It's all there. Every deed done in college. Everything you thought you did behind a locked door and a turned out light. Thought no one else saw, no one knew. Sins you have long forgotten about. This person will be presented in that day with every one of them. Every skeleton in the closet will come out dancing. All sins done against his glory. Which is, again, what's the purpose of all this? It's the glory of God. We were created for this reason. What is sin? A rebellion against God's glory. A rebellion that he's the center of it all. I'm going to put myself in the center. And I'll, I'll, I'll keep him in the picture. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll have some quiet time each day. I'll spend 20 minutes in the day and I'll, on God. And I'll, you know, from time to time throughout the day, I'll sprinkle a little bit of thinking about God. I'll be there on Sunday. I mean, God's in the picture. He's a major part of my life. No, no, no. If he's not the life, you've sinned against the God. And every instance in our lives where we have done anything and everything, and he was not the center of it all, is recorded and will be disclosed. It will be evidence against us. Ecclesiastes 11.9, I bring these texts to you just to say, in, like, in case anyone's thinking, well, my goodness, he waited until the very end to tell us this. <laughs> you can go all the way back to the origin of the Bible, some of the earliest books of the Bible. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer in your days of youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know for all these things, the writer of Ecclesiastes, feel free, do what you want to do, but know for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. That's... That goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The warning has been here all along. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. This is not news to us. Jesus says in Luke 8, nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be made known and come to light. And the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 4, no creatures hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So there will be, in judgment, all will stand face to face and give an account of their life. In this great, great white throne judgment, the judge is seated upon his throne. The sea has given up its dead. Hades has given up its dead. Christ has summoned all unbelievers to his throne and standing face to face before the one whom they were created to know, love, and serve, but they've rejected. Now he opens the book and face to face... The glory of God measures every life against his perfect holiness, against his perfect righteousness. Which is why we read in Matthew's gospel, you must therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Why? Because on that great day, that's what you're measured up against. 
Not how religious you were compared to somebody else. Not about how theologically minded you were compared to somebody else. You will be on one side of the scale and God himself will be on the other side of the scale and you will be judged. Are you as perfect as he is? And the line of the tribe of Judah does not grade on a curve. He does not cut corners. God is as God-centered as he created us to be. And if we don't measure up to God's standards, woe be to us. This is why more terrifying than eternity in hell is standing face to face with the blazing perfection of Almighty Christ. God's justice for sins against his glory demands payment. And a lot of times we think of payment. I lived a life of sin comprehensively, collectively, kind of grouping them all together. And then punishment will kind of be for all of them. No, that's not how it works. God's justice demands punishment for each and every transgression against his glory. His glory is far too valuable to say, you know what, let's, kind of, let's just lump it all together. And we'll just kind of lump all your sins again, and we'll just kind of, let, let's lay out something. No, every cosmic treason against the glory of God will be dealt with individually. That demands a lot of justice, and that will demand a lot of punishment. God writes in Ezekiel 18, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the Son is mine. The soul who sins because it belongs to me will die. Romans 6, Paul writes, the wages of sin, a life lived where Christ is not all, is death. Paul writes in Galatians, do not be deceived, God will not be mocked. You may fool one another. We may make it look like we are really interested in God, that we're really loving Jesus. But Paul says, God will not be mocked. The omniscient, all-knowing God who's keeping the books, He knows. And whatever you sow, you will reap. On this day, no sin will be overlooked. No sin. It's not a, wow, that's a big book of sin against me. I think this is clear. This is going to be a quick case. Boom. Eternal damnation. Line item one. Line item two. Line item three. Every instance of sin against this God. It's a mockery of God to expect anything less than that. That God in holiness would be willing to just kind of, ah, that doesn't look good for you. I, this God who created us for his glory will not be mocked. Every sin will be judged for every person. From Adam all the way until the return of Christ. And every sin will either be pardoned every sin in the book. Line item one, here's your guilt, pardoned. Line item two, here's your sin, guilt, 
but it's pardoned. Or every sin will be punished throughout the ages to come. Can you imagine? If you just pause and, and focus your heart upon the unrestrained, holy, righteous lion of the tribe of Judah. Can you imagine? This is the terror. What it is to stand face to face and you have no garment to cover you. You're just exposed. You're naked spiritually. This, this Christ, he knows all about you. You can't stand behind religion. You can't stand behind your church attendance. You can't stand behind your morality. You can't stand behind your political associations. You can't stand behind your, your, your position on, on, on different issues in life. It is your life laid bare with regard to where is Christ in it all? And you don't get a second chance. There will be no appeal, no reversal. Christ will say, Kingsley Adebayo, Miss Angie, Jake, this was your life. This is the reality of your sin. Either you will pay the price for it or Christ has done it for you. That's exhibit A, the book. There is a second exhibit on display here. If you consider, continue reading in verse 12, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book, exhibit B, was opened, which is the book of life. Now, this is not the first time we've been introduced to the book of life. You can go back and read Revelation chapter 13, Revelation chapter 17. You can go back and look at Jesus' life and ministry. What is this book? Biblically, it is a book that contains the name of every believer, all the elect of God from before the foundation of the world. They're in that book. It's a secret book. It's, it's not a book that is, is accessible to us. It's not a book that until this day we will ever know. It is the, the secret will of God. But it's a book from before the foundation of the world. And it, it contains the names of every person for whom Christ died. And in order for that other book to say that those sins are forgiven, you got to go to exhibit B. Did Christ die for you? Are those sins atoned for by the blood of Jesus Christ? Here's your, in this book, your, your guilt record against God. And in this book, does Christ's blood cover your sins? And you take the two together. If the name is not there from before the foundation of the world, he will punish for all eternity. So you have exhibit A and exhibit B. Your guilt record and God's record of his eternal plans and purposes in Christ Jesus for his glory. To give mercy and grace to some undeserving, but for whom Christ died. So with the presentation of these two books that work together, in this great white throne judgment, the sinner will see they have no hope. They have no claim. And now they must receive the just punishment from this angry king. 
None of these will walk away forgiven. None of these will walk away with mercy. None of them will walk away with a second chance. That's what the text says. They were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Just quickly, parenthetically, I would also add this. Scripture tells us that not only will sinful men and women be judged on this last day by the deeds they've committed, but also we're told in Paul's letter to the Romans that the amount of light they have received will also factor into the judgment. What do I mean by that? It's this. To those who had a greater exposure to Christ, and yet they too have refused to bend the knee and keep Christ central in their life, they have a greater accountability than that person who lives in the, across the world in darkness who's never heard the name of Christ. They will both be punished. But the one who has sat Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and heard the name of Christ and had a greater exposure to the truth of God's word and to the gospel will be held to a stricter standard of judgment. And this goes back when we talked about the groupings. The greatest danger is not for the outright sinner who just hates Christ. The greatest danger in judgment is not for the, the, the cult member who's worshiping a false god. You know who's in the greatest danger? The unconverted church member who God has given opportunity to know Christ, to understand the gospel as looking unto Jesus and finding in him and all, your, and all their all, but who continue to live a life of morality, continue to live a life of religion, and pull Jesus along with it like a bumper sticker. The great judgment here. Those who have a greater awareness of Christ will be hailed to a stricter judgment. That's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10. After Jesus had just taught and performed miracles in a certain city, he says this, Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now, if you know your Bible, that has to cause you to tremble and say, Well, I know what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah ungodliness and I know what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah and I know that I mean just physically his destruction upon it it was an awful judgment what did Jesus just say this town that I just came and preached and revealed myself to and yet they've rejected me the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah will be more bearable than the judgment upon these why because they had the light they had the opportunity. Listen, and I say this tongue in cheek, but if you've re resolved in your mind you're going to go to hell, that you're going to go, you, you just will not love Jesus with all of your heart, soul, mind. You're, you've resolved, I'm going to be religious, I'm going to be moral, I'm going to be political, but I, I am not this, this fanatical way of Jesus. If, if you've resolved, I'm just going to, I'm going to take my chances on that. If you're going to go to hell, go to hell from across the world where you did not have the light of the gospel that you have here. Because today, anyone, both in this setting and, and in the church abroad in our country today, to continue to reject Christ, what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah will be better than what he does to that soul. That brings us to the fifth truth. 
the sentencing announced. Verses 14 and 15, eternal damnation. Then, right? It's all about the glory of God. It's all about the one on the throne, the terrifying nature of it, the summons to come before him. The books opened. The evidence is clear. First, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So this judgment is the second death. What's he talking about there? What's the first death? Well, physical death. Physical death, when we, this body dies. Second death is eternal, it's spiritual. It's what Jesus said in Matthew 10 when he makes this distinction between a first and second death. Don't fear those who can kill the body, first death, but can't feel the, kill the soul, second death. Rather, fear him, who? Christ on the throne, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Luke 12, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, first death, has authority to cast you into hell, second death. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Hebrews 10, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And this second death is the lake of fire. Fire is imagery of hell that we see all throughout the Bible. I don't know that it absolutely necessitates that hell is just a fireball all around. The imagery is of intense suffering, pain, and agony. Matthew's gospel, Matthew 5, it's the fiery hell. In Matthew 13, the furnace of fire. In Matthew chapter 9, hell is called the, the fire, the place where the fire is not quenched. In Mark's gospel, for everyone will be salted with fire, talking about a context of judgment. Hebrews 10, the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Jude 7, the punishment of eternal fire. Fire is, is commonly referred to here. And now this lake of fire and brimstone here, chapter 20, this lake of fire where a soul will be tormented day and night is depicted of an eternal punishment. Elsewhere, these fires of hell, this lake of fire is, is also symbolically referenced as the place of weeping and the place of gnashing of teeth. And you go and look at those texts. There is a definite article there. Why is that important? We're all familiar with weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? I mean, when you lose a loved one, you weep and wail. If you love, uh, lose a child... There's that gritting of your teeth and just the anger and the weeping and the wailing. Uh, we know weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. This is called the weeping and the wailing and the gnashing of teeth, meaning we know weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. This is supreme. This is bigger than that. This is the weeping and gnashing of teeth, the wailing. Every sense that you experience in weeping and wailing and gnashing your teeth here will be enhanced there. Why? Because it's the wrath of this Christ whom you have rejected. 
And let's be very clear about what hell is. Sometimes it's depicted. What makes hell so terrible is that God's not there. God is omnipresent. You can't pick and choose where he's omnipresent. Omnipresent means he's everywhere. So what makes hell hell is God restrains his grace, his mercy. It's now nothing but the fullness of his wrath coming to bear upon the life of an unbeliever. Let me ask you, because I would anticipate, you know, as I'm preparing messages and praying through it, I'm always trying to put myself in your position, think, what are you thinking? What are you going through? And that's always a dangerous thing. But I would not find it hard to believe that some might be sitting there thinking, well, Jake, sure, over, overstating this today. Jake, sure, painting a picture here. I, I, I see what he's trying to do here, but I'm not buying it for a second. I mean, I, this just seems a little over the top today, Jake, to which I would reply. No. If anything, I am completely unable to actually paint the picture the way that it really is. If you think this is over the top, it might be a reflection of how little you've understood how serious Christ is about his glory and what his work on the cross was intended to do and that when the Holy Spirit comes and takes out a heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh that loves Jesus and how serious Christ will punish any who that's not there. Maybe, maybe if this sounds over the top, maybe that's an indication that we far too little understand Christ and the gospel. Because the reality is, what's described here in Revelation 20 goes far worse than anything I can portray. I can't picture it terrifyingly enough what it will be to come face to face with the King of kings and Lord of lords who demanded love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The one whose body still marks the, the marks of the cross where he died. That sins might be forgiven. And we might be reconciled to God through him. And yet we continued. Maybe we toyed with him a little bit. I prayed a prayer. I walked an aisle. I did this. And Christ staring back at me. You fool. The work of the cross was to return me to my, that place of centrality in your life. And now we're going to bring books open, your life to bear underneath it, staring me in the eyes, every thought, every deed. And all you need is one, that I send you to an eternal damnation. And we're going line item by line item. Friends, that's the picture of Revelation chapter 20. A terrifying scene of something that looms on the horizon. This great white throne is on God's calendar. We don't know when, we don't know where. But it is a definite date. By God's grace, we're right now living in the church age between the ascension of Christ and his return. But make no, make, There's mercy, there's grace, but make no mistake about it. When he returns, he comes as a lion, 
No more grace. No more mercy. Revelation chapter 20 is not given to us as a very cool, let me try to figure out the end times and how, where this fits into things. Revelation 20 is written for the seven churches, representative of every church in every age, as a sobering reality that King Jesus on his throne, who has done everything in his life, death, and resurrection to bring a soul to himself, is serious about his glory. And if you will not bend the knee to King Jesus, he will glorify himself in it. He will conquer his enemies. He's already done so in the resurrection, in Satan, over sin, over the world. Satan now is bound, awaiting this whole thing. He's going to purge the earth of Satan, and he will purge the earth of all who do not love him in this way. It's a sobering reality that says every church, church at Sardis, church at Laodicea, church at Pergamum, church at Covenant Life, in Olive Branch, Mississippi. Take note of the terror of your king. So what do you do with this? What does a text like this require of us? Just a few things here. Number one, the most obvious thing I could say in the world, and I can only pray that God would take it and embed it upon my heart as he would yours. Beloved, make your calling and election sure now. Now. And that is a present tense command that we get in the epistles, meaning it's not just something here on February the 10th or whatever today's date is. It's not just that today let's do it. It is every day, as long as it is called today. Be making a sober analysis of your own life. And let's talk about that for just a moment. Evaluating your own life is never fun. It's always more fun to evaluate somebody else's life, right? To make judgment upon somebody else's life, what they should be doing, what they're not doing. Why do we do that? Because I sure don't want to do it to myself, because now that's going to force me to perhaps alter something. It's going to cause me to adjust my life. If I look at my life the way Christ looks at it, but make no mistake, either you make that sober analysis of the reality of your spiritual heart, or... Christ will, with the book wide open. And at that point, it's too late for you, for me. We must make our calling and election sure today. What do I mean by that? Is the fruit of the work of the Spirit in us? Jesus told Nicodemus, what must I do to be born again? Again, that's kind of a, an ongoing conversation in John's gospel, but to, to Nicodemus, you must be born from above. You must be born for water in the Spirit. He doesn't say anything about Nicodemus, what you have to do. He says it's something that God does from above by His Spirit. Born of water, cleansing Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming, taking out that heart of rebellion for Jesus and putting in a heart that loves Jesus. An objective reality in the life of one who the Spirit dwells, there is a growing affection and love for the person of Jesus Christ such that everything else in the world begins to be less and less valuable to me because He is all. Can you honestly say, as I have to check my own heart, can I honestly say, I love Jesus more than anything just simply because of who he is. I love Jesus for what he's done. And my desire is to live a life of pure obedience to him. I'm not perfect in it, but my desire is to do so. And when I'm not perfect, when repentance is person-oriented, I realize that my sin is against the king and I return to that king whom I love so much. My sin is an offense against him. 
only a regenerate person born from above loves Jesus like this. But this is what we're called to. Can you make your calling and election sure based on not something you did 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, but upon right now? Christ is all. As you make your calling and election sure, secondly, cling to this Jesus. Cling to this Jesus. He's coming again. And He's coming again in a terrifying manner. No grace, no mercy. You don't want to be found distant relationally from this one. You want to be as near to this king so that when he comes, even with unrestrained mercy, excuse me, unrestrained wrath, no mercy, no grace, you have absolute confidence. This is my king. And this is about to get ugly. But I've been walking daily so near to this one. I don't fear. I tremble before the majesty of this one, but I don't fear because I've been walking with him. All, all that's about to happen right now is that my relationship with him has been here and here, and now it's about to transpire. He's about to usher me in over here where I will dwell in the new heaven and new earth with him forever. But that kind of confidence can only come through clinging to Jesus day in and day out. Another application of this, humility. Humble worship. You cannot read Revelation chapter 20. Let me take that back. You can. You can't read Revelation chapter 20 through the eyes of the Holy Spirit and His presence with you and walk away from the text feeling good about you. What you can do with Revelation chapter 20 as you search your soul and make your calling and election sure and the work of the Spirit upon your soul, and there's objective evidence that, yes, it's true, it's real, my love for Jesus, and I'm clinging to Jesus, what this can do is cultivate humility that says, good God, but for the grace of you, I'm going to hell. But for your grace, I would stand here in this manner, books open, name not in the book of life, and I would receive my just reward. But because of you, we just sang about it, because of your grace, I'm not condemned. And the only thing that makes me any different from anyone you're going to send to an eternal hell, the only thing that is not how good I am, how religious, I was right, they were wrong, is Jesus Christ. That's the only thing. And what does that do? It cultivates that clinging to Jesus because that's my only hope, let me claim. And what does that do? It cultivates that love for Jesus. My goodness, you're everything to me. Cultivating a life of humility, a life of worship for the one who, through his life and death, has done everything necessary to take our sins against this God and put him behind the back. To remove our sins, to wash away our sins, to, to give us his perfect righteousness. He's done it all. There's nothing to boast in except boasting in the Lord, boasting in Christ. Another obvious application is evangelism. With Satan being bound, that's the early part of chapter 20, he's no his work of deceiving the nations is no longer a reality. 
So now, my job is to undeceive the nations about Christ. Show forth the beauty of Christ, the majesty of Christ. Not in a programmatic way, but out of the overflow of your love for Jesus. Out of the overflow of today of having thought about how much Christ means and he's everything, he's central. His, now the overflow is as I go out into the world around people who they too will stand before this God and be ushered into eternal damnation unless they repent. Well, then my job is to just live unto Jesus as his ambassador and make the glory of Christ known from Genesis to Revelation. And then the last application. If you're here this morning, and it's just clear upon your soul, not because of anything I've said, but the work of the Spirit upon your heart, that you don't know Jesus in this way. That Jesus is a historical figure, Jesus is a... But if you don't know Jesus in this way, as King of kings and Lord of lords, who's serious about His glory, then consider this a divine appointment by God Himself. To put you in a place this morning... <laughs> where you have to hear the truth about who He is, how why you were made, what sin is, the lengths that He will go to punish for all who sin against Him, but that through Jesus Christ, His life, His death upon the cross, your sins can be forgiven and you can be reconciled to this God. Jesus Himself said, Narrow is the way to eternal life. Wide is the gate to damnation. What that means is most who think themselves to be Christians are not. And that's why Jesus warns repetitively. In that day, many will say, didn't I do Depart from me, I never knew you. The context of that passage, wide is the gate to damnation and narrow is the gate to eternal life. Some of us were talking about this this week in a, a study we were doing this week. The context of that, he's talking to the church. He's not talking about most of the world. He's saying most who profess to be Christians are not. Because true Christianity is not religion, not morality, not politics. It's Jesus. Beloved, today, if you know for sure Jesus is not all in all, run to Christ. Run to Him. It's not too late. It's the day of grace. The day of judgment is obviously coming. Then it will be too late. It will be too late for the procrastinator. But now, run to Christ. Repent and seek Him.